This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science. I'm Maya Wolner, your podcast host. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Molly Ladd-Taylor about her new book, Fixing the Poor, Eugenic Sterilization and Child Welfare in the 20th Century, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2017. Dr. Molly Ladd-Taylor is a professor of history at York University in Toronto, Canada. Her areas of research interest include women's health and child welfare. She is the author of Mother Work, Women, Child Welfare, and the State, 1890 through 1930, and co-editor of Bad Mothers, The Politics of Blame in 20th Century America. Good morning, Dr. Ladd-Taylor. It's great to have you on New Books in Science. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. So let me start by asking you, what inspired you to write this book? Well, my first uh, series of publications, as you mentioned, were about mothers, a social history of mothers, and how women, ordinary women, and also activists uh, in social settlements and welfare activists, women's club activists, used, became involved in maternal and child health and used the rhetoric of the good mother, uh, the mother overworked by, uh, and by poverty and stress, uh, ill health, to build welfare services and create the welfare state uh, that we uh, have today in terms of uh, welfare policies, uh, reducing infant mortality, and so on. At the same time, this was during the Progressive Era in the 1920s, and at the same time, this is when uh, states passed eugenic sterilization laws. So in my second project, my first project focusing on so-called good mothers and the need for welfare services. My second project, a set of uh, work, has focused on bad mothers. So I co-edited that book that you mentioned on, on bad mothers and the politics of mother blame, and then looking at eugenic sterilization law. So I'm interested in that kind of good mother, bad mother flip. So eugenics and sterilization today are most often associated um, in our minds with Nazi horrors during World War II. And um, some of our listeners might be unfamiliar with the history of eugenics and sterilization in the United States more broadly. So perhaps you can speak first more generally about American attitudes and practices of eugenics during the early 20th century, and maybe also clarify the relationship between eugenics and sterilization. Well, there's been a lot of scholarship, a lot of excellent scholarship on eugenics, and it is clear that there's a lot of, of support, a lot of interest in eugenics. And it's a very, it was a very, as many scholars have shown, a very broad concept that could basically mean anything to anybody. So eugenics is uh, breeding, uh, improving the human race by controlling reproduction. And that led to a number of social policies in the progressive era in the 1920s, including health clinics, 
and uh, later family allowances. On the positive eugenic side and on the negative eugenic side, it included a number of policies, uh, most obviously sterilization, but also what was called eugenic segregation, the institutionalization of people with intellectual disabilities and mental illness. So eugenics was a very uh, widespread uh, movement, not only in the United States, but of, of course across the globe. It was uh, considered a science at that time related to really the application of uh, Mendel's laws of uh, genetic transmission to uh, human heredity. But eugenics, as it was understood at that time, was meant all kinds of things. So people used it in, uh, not necessarily to focus on heredity only, but most in practice, most uh, eugenicists uh, imagined that there was, we needed to both improve the environment and improve uh, heredity, so or improve health care. So often eugenics is associated with sterilization and the most uh, extreme sensationalist, hardcore uh, eugenics policies uh, that are scientific racism and the most offensive policies. And I'm part of a number of scholars, uh, really beginning with Nancy Lee Steppen uh, in her book on Latin American eugenics, that really emphasizes the ordinariness of uh, eugenics and its adaptability and the ways that it could be used for all kinds of different social policies. So maybe you could also expand on how you would characterize your approach in this book as different from sort of these normative stories about how eugenics played out in the United States. Most scholars of eugenics are really focused on the idea, eugenics discourse, the eugenics science, the theories of eugenics. And they argue that uh, eugenics activists, welfare activists, uh, institution superintendents, and so on, were mostly animated by ideas and the theories of human heredity that eugenics provided them. And I'm actually a materialist at heart. I think the eugenics ideas are important, but I think one thing that makes my book quite different is it looks at the practice of eugenic sterilization uh, policies, in specifically in one state, Minnesota. And it also uh, looks at the more uh, mundane aspects of uh, sterilization policies. What caused people to embrace sterilization? I think it was a wide range of things, ranging from uh, professional advancement uh, to uh, disability concerns, ideas about poverty, uh, and so on. So it's I, I, one thing that I'm trying to do is untangle the theories of human heredity that were advanced by people like Charles Davenport and the Eugenic Record Office in the United States, and really look at how uh, the language of eugenics was used for a number of policies, particularly welfare policies, that were related to what we might think of human heredity, but uh, really that language was used for other kinds of policies that um, were not necessarily rooted in theories of human heredity. So why did you choose to look at the state-run sterilization program within Minnesota in particular? I, it's at the time I was uh, living in Minnesota, it was a bit of, a, of a, a coincidence that I wound up there. But I think the advantage of Minnesota is that the sterilization program there was fairly ordinary or even uh, a bit of a best case scenario. In the United States, 
we tend to focus on the extremes uh, and we emphasize, rightly so, the horrible fact that some 63,000 Americans were uh, sterilized under eugenics programs. And we tend to see it as a national uh, project. The American sterilization advocates like Paul Papineau and others influenced the Nazis and so on. But in reality, there was a wide range of sterilization um, programs. 32 states passed sterilization laws, but 18 states did not pass sterilization laws. And the number of sterilizations performed in each state ranged widely from uh, 30 in Arizona to more than 20,000 in California. Minnesota is a middle-of-the-road state. And in some ways, it was a best-case scenario. Minnesota was one of only two states where sterilization, uh, the, the law provided for the sterilization of the feeble-minded, so-called, and the insane. We can talk about those concepts in a minute. Uh, but it was one of the few states that had a voluntary sterilization requirement, meaning that consent of kin was required for sterilization. And the, in the case of people designated insane, the personal consent to surgery was required. In that sense, the sterilization program in Minnesota kind of foreshadows the sterilization abuse we associate uh, with the 1970s, the contraceptive sterilization abuse uh, of the, uh, the Ralph sisters in Alabama and other uh, uh, women on welfare, in particular Indigenous women and uh, Chicano women. So it's an interesting uh, way in that regard, because unlike the states that have garnered the most attention, California, North Carolina, Virginia, it's less extreme. It's less sensational, and it gives us the opportunity to analyze how sterilization worked in practice. Yes, yeah, so I'm very interested in this notion of, um, of voluntariness as well as consent and the labels of feeble-mindedness and insane. So before we get to that, though, um, let me ask you why you chose to begin your narrative in the late 19th century um, and why you felt that including this portion of the history prior to Minnesota's passage of its eugenic law in 1925 was so important. Right. So Minnesota passed its uh, eugenics law in 1925, and that law itself was based on a 1917 law that uh, the Children's Code that allowed uh, for the compulsory commitment to state guardianship uh, and possible institutionalization of people who were designated by a court who were designated feeble-minded or insane we historians always go back in time. to So to understand this 1917 law, I wanted to go back to the late 19th century and look at the history of the Faribault School for the Feeble-Minded, where the vast majority of sterilizations in the United States were performed. The late 19th century, of course, is a time of great social change, a period of uh, prosperity and great hardship for, for many. It's a time really that the social welfare uh, system that shaped the United States after the Civil War and well uh, up until the 1930s and beyond was created. So to look at 
sterilization as a welfare policy, which is really my main concern, I think we need to look at uh, what was happening before the law actually was uh, instituted and also uh, what happened afterwards, because uh, although the law wasn't repealed until 1970s uh, in Minnesota and during World War II, the operations dropped and they never really uh, returned to the fuller scale. A total of about 2,350 people were sterilized in Minnesota. Those numbers are, are quite low. Really nowhere are the statistics adequate to really account for the number of sterilizations. But it's clear that... Um, it's clear that to understand sterilization, we really need to go back in time and look at how people thought of uh, the so-called defective, dependent, and delinquent classes in those early uh, in those early days in the late nineteenth century. So maybe this is a good opportunity, actually, to discuss in a little bit of detail um, what you set up as a duality in chapter one. Uh, between the, quote, feeble-minded menace and the, quote, innocent child. Um, I'm also hoping that you can sort of expand on how these categories linked up to economics and ideas of economic dependence, as you've mentioned, with the so-called three Ds. So many historians have written about the history of childhood. And in scholarship on the history of childhood, beginning with Viviana Zelizer in her uh, important book, Pricing the Priceless uh, Child, they talk about how children, the value of children, increased from the late 19th century into the 1930s in the United States. As children were becoming uh, idealized, as innocent, as sentimental, as the future of society. And welfare programs and other children's policies, including the work that I did my first projects on, the child welfare uh, studies. We have a lot of information about the juvenile court, the development of mother's pensions or aid to dependent children so that women uh, and children could stay at home uh, if they were poor, lost the male breadwinner, uh, rather than being institutionalized. So I was interested in the relationship between the, this rising uh, idea, the ele elevated idea of children's value, and how that could be reconciled with eugenics. And it turns out that in the late 19th century, child welfare advocates are beginning to bring a new group of um, poor people, that is children, normal children, into the deserving poor. So just to step back, a big theme that in my book is this distinction, long-standing distinction in welfare policy between the deserving and the undeserving poor. So in the early 19th century, children were not particularly treated uh, differently. Minnesota was one of the states that was uh, where children were sent on the orphan trains into Minnesota, into rural areas. They were treated with uh, tremendous hardship and uh, so one of the things that child welfare reformers did was try to improve conditions for children so that children, uh, just because they're poor, wouldn't wind up in jail, wouldn't be sent to reform school, and so on. And uh, at the same time, child welfare reformers are trying to improve conditions and define some children, working class children, poor kids, as, uh, as innocent 
they did that in part by distinguishing those children from the feeble-minded. So they created a distinction. Previously, in the around 1880s, welfare activists talked about the defective, delinquent, and dependent classes, the three Ds, as they were called. And what child welfare reformers tried to do was to distinguish, to, to take children out of that category and to define children whose parents were unfit, whose parents were poor, whose parents were criminals, and define them as deserving and innocent who had futures. But there was a lot of opposition to that, and both for their own ideas about disability and defect, and also as a strategic choice, they ended up uh, leaving kids who were defined as defective, the so-called feeble-minded, behind, the hereditarily unfit defined. So in the juvenile court, that was to give normal children, kid who had a potential for rehabilitation, the right to stay home uh, with their parents, be put on probation, and stay out of jail. Similarly, aid to dependent children was about uh, enabling uh, the children of deserving mothers to be raised at home rather than put in an orphanage. So it's very much a, but at the same time, children who were considered defective, whether they're disabled, have intellectual disabilities or behavioral uh, issues, they were defined as defective for good. So maybe you could also talk about sort of the relationship between feeble-mindedness and sexual mores and, and gender, because that also seems to be really important in your narrative, especially with relating these issues to, you know, essentially ending uh, hereditary lines in families. Right. So gender is obviously central to eugenics and to the construction of feeble-mindedness uh, for a couple of reasons. One is women as mothers are the ones who have the children who will be innocent and have positive futures on the one hand or uh, defective and feeble-minded on the other. So uh, women are central as the uh, reproducers and also as, as the mothers, those who raise the children. And Feeble-mindedness uh, in itself was highly gendered, as many, many scholars have pointed out. And uh, major eugenics thinkers like uh, Walter Fronald of the uh, uh, institution's superintendent, they generally believed in the 19, around 1910 that women, feeble-minded women were particularly dangerous because they were... Uh, they had sex and they infected feeble-minded men and they had babies uh, out of wedlock and, uh, you know, were more likely to uh, have large numbers of children and then, um, you know, create a burden on the welfare system and in future generations. The reality is, I think that this emphasis on women having uh, unfit or defective children is part of a long-standing concern about unwed mothers, which is certainly not anything that's new to the late 19th century or to the eugenics era. The notion that uh, single mothers, uh, women who got pregnant outside of, of marriage, would uh, sort of deepen poverty in their own generation. They would become more poor because, of course, they couldn't support themselves. And then they would deep it past that deepened poverty onto their children and their children's children, those things, that has a long history uh, that isn't necessarily related to uh, 
that goes beyond eugenics and theories of heredity. So maybe we can talk now about feeble-mindedness as a legal legal and administrative category, while also maybe you could also introduce the 1925 eugenic sterilization law. What characterized it in Minnesota? So the Minnesota law applied to uh, feeble-minded and insane, and I'm using those terms as they were used in the law, obviously very uh, problematic terms. The law applied to feeble-minded and insane uh, wards of the state, that is, only to those who had already been committed to state guardianship in probate court on those grounds. And the law permitted uh, a panel of experts to determine that uh, these uh, people would be sterilized. And uh, so it was an administrative decision uh, for uh, people who were wards of the state. The law also required, as previously mentioned, uh, that there would be consent of kin. And also in the case of uh, persons who were insane, they had to be in a ment- have resided in a mental hospital for six months and give their own personal consent. The thing that I think is uh, important about my book and something somewhat unusual in terms of thinking about feeble-mindedness is I am particularly interested in how feeble-minded, a feeble-minded person is a legal category. Many scholars have looked at feeble-mindedness, often describing it as a catch-all term for anybody who was unfit. You know, immigrants, blacks, Mexicans, indigenous people, poor white trash, to just to use all these terms, people with disabilities and so on. It's a very uh, broad term, and in many ways it was. But what that misses is that it was also a legal category, a legal category that in Minnesota required people who were committed as feeble-minded in probate court uh, to They lost their right to sign contracts, to own property, to get married without the state's permission in exchange for the state's so-called protection. So, you know, it's a it's a legal category. And of course, everybody who was not everybody who was considered feeble minded, either as a medical diagnosis or as a slur, uh, were brought into probate court adjudicated, feeble-minded, forcibly institutionalized, and possibly sterilized. So, so I, yeah, I'm really interested in this um, sort of paradoxical situation, if you want to call it that, between not needing to give consent to sterilization, um, but also being forcibly committed. So, you know, under what kinds of circumstances would one become a ward of the state in the 1920s and 30s? In Minnesota, and then also, you know, you mentioned medical diagnosis, but how how were IQ tests used during this period to establish whether or not an individual was was feeble minded? Because you know, Mildred Thompson, one of the individuals that you discuss in in your book, if I recall correctly, did her dissertation or wrote a thesis actually about the use of uh, IQ tests in establishing medical diagnosis. IQ tests were extremely important, of course, <clears throat> and Mildred Thompson, and uh, there was an important uh, figure in Minnesota named Frederick Kuhlman, who was, uh, had been a classmate of Lewis Terman, one of the main IQ testers, uh, and, and was a strong advocate for IQ testing. So it was used as, 
a way, a, a measure for uh, people uh, to determine whether they were uh, feeble-minded, should be committed to guardianship or not. So it's very important. But the fact is, the law made no mention of IQ tests. And in probate court, IQ tests might or might not be used by a judge. It was entirely up to a judge. The probate judge who made the decision in Minnesota about who was feeble-minded should be committed to guardianship and who wasn't feeble-minded, this is an elected official who has no medical or legal training, and it's entirely up to him whether he appoints a board of examiners, including a psychologist who might test somebody to see about their IQ or not. So it's no coincidence that in this same period when IQ is increasingly important, the admissions records of the Faribault School for the Feeble-Minded, sometimes they record IQ and sometimes they don't. So IQ is an important, uh, is an important kind of shortcut for uh, psychologists, institutions, superintendents, the administrators of the eugenics policies to use. Uh, and it becomes increasingly important uh, later. But IQ is not everything, and it was, especially in the early period, it was quite uh, haphazard in its usage. The other thing about IQ, as I mentioned in my book, is scholars have written a lot about IQ uh, testing and have made the really important point that they're biased in terms of culture, uh, in terms of education, and so on. But in Minnesota, there is some, some evidence that in some cases, when uh, allegedly feeble-minded people were given IQ tests, sometimes they did really well, and women were saved from institutionalization and sterilization because they actually performed better than expected on the IQ test. So the IQ test didn't only have one function, uh, and it was uneven in its application. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you've mentioned the Faribault School um, a number of times now, and I was wondering, you also included a picture of it uh, in, in the book. So maybe, um, maybe you can describe the institution for our listeners, tell us what it was like maybe in the 1930s and discuss some of the abuses, whether or not you would consider it uh, a totalizing institution, that kind of thing. So the Faribault School for the Feeble-Minded was founded in 1879, along with many other state institutions for the so-called feeble-minded people with intellectual disabilities, epilepsy, and so on. In the 19th century, the Faribault School was considered one of the most prominent and illustrious schools, such schools in the United States. And it was led by the same superintendent, A.C. Rogers, from the 1880s until he died in 1917. In this early period, the Faribault School, I argue, functioned uh, as kind of like a poorhouse or another institution that poor people uh, would use, didn't like, but sometimes used to their own, for their own purposes. Up until 1917, admission to the uh, Faribault School was, in theory anyway, voluntary for adults. And so this meant that relatives could have some kind of relationship or interaction with school officials, and also that they could take their relatives out of the institution if they were unhappy with it. Sometimes 
that didn't work as well in practice as it did in theory. But by and large, it, there was a give and take. This all changed in 1917 with the death of A.C. Rogers and the passage of the compulsory commitment law that was part of the Children's Code. Thereafter, commitment to the Faribault School, commitment as feeble-minded, and then the decision to institutionalize was uh, made by the Board of Control. It wasn't even made by the officials at the Faribault School. The decision to, it wasn't made by the families. Uh, This took admissions decisions out of the hands of institution superintendents and of the families and put them in the hands of uh, basically Mildred Thompson, who was the de facto uh, uh, guardian of the state's so-called feeble-minded wards. Immediately what happened was that probate judges, after the passage of this law in 1917, probate judges, they might not know a lot about feeble-mindedness in terms of the medical diagnosis and theories of human heredity, but they certainly recognized that a feeble-minded designation was a really handy way for local communities who were responsible for the support of poor people, poor unwed mothers, people with disabilities, and so on, to uh, to use. They could designate people as feeble-minded with the likelihood that they would be institutionalized. If they're institutionalized, then the county pays a smaller portion of their economic support. It also was useful to get rid of people who had uh, behavioral concerns. So institutionalization after 1917 did become that kind of total institution that we associate with Irvin Goffman. After 1917, there was was no uh, way for uh, families, unless they went to court, to get their families out of the institution, or unless they were lucky and managed to convince the institution officials and the state to release them. So that was really a pivotal moment in 1917. And I argue that that uh, change in you know the years after 1917 with compulsory commitment contributed to the passage of the 1925 sterilization law. Because, of course, you have judges and the state institutionalizing all these people And there's a crisis of overcrowding in the institution. And so sterilization was passed in part in order to release people from the institution and so they could work back in the community uh, in low-wage jobs. Uh, Interestingly, one reason I argue in Minnesota that women were disproportionately uh, sterilized, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that uh, there were more low-wage jobs available for that could be easily monitored for women. Women could work in the Twin Cities, in laundries, in, um, in restaurants, in, in domestic uh, service. Whereas for men, for so-called feeble-minded men, uh, really mostly what they could do was work on farms. And that was, um, it was harder to monitor. And also a lot of the public objected to the release of uh, of men who were considered defective or dangerous in some way. Right. So in chapters four and five, you discuss the routine operations of Minnesota's sterilization program um, and sort of explore this, what you've already mentioned, the price of freedom um, uh, as being sterilization for release from a state institution. And I was very interested to see how 
essentially it was the worthy, the so-called worthiest of the feeble-minded that would be identified as sort of eligible for this, uh, this bargain. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how practitioners determined who were the worthiest of the feeble-minded and how um, individuals would be selected for this program, essentially, of agreeing to sterilization in exchange for um, uh, uh, deinstitutionalized life. Yes. And, and this, again, is, I think, where we can see the value of looking beyond just ideas, because then we often, people often talk about who was sterilized. It's the most unfit. It's the people who were, you know, racialized, who uh, were sexually out of, you know, sexually active out of wedlock and so on. In fact, when we get into the records to really analyze the practical decisions for who was sterilized, as opposed to who was kept in the institution, and that's the the key issue here, who was sterilized depended on a number of issues that were a lot more mundane than one might think. One was, who could survive the operation? This seems like a kind of odd thing to think about, but uh, people who were institutionalized were often quite um, frail physically. So, Picking somebody who could survive the operation, literally survive the operation, not die on the operating table, uh, that was their first consideration. Uh, In addition, they wanted to have somebody who could uh, be released in the community, hold down a job, and not get into any trouble. They also needed to have a place where that person could go. So these very practical concerns, will somebody in the community... Uh, take them. In the 1920s, the uh, state of Minnesota, the Board of Control, set up with working with a local women's organization, the Women's Welfare League, set up uh, some clubhouses in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Duluth that functioned kind of like halfway houses that would monitor sterilized women. They'd work in low-wage jobs like laundries, and uh, and they would uh, you know get casework. They were very concerned in Minnesota and in other states as well about not releasing sterilized women or men into the community where they would, uh, it was thought, be promiscuous. Now they didn't have to worry about getting pregnant. They could just uh, be promiscuous uh, and so on. So the real crux of the issue was they wanted to find in Minnesota people who were actually uh, fairly respectable. They wouldn't be able, in, in the minds of the state, they might not be able to uh, raise their own children to support children themselves, but they would certainly be able to hold down a job, they hoped, this is a theory anyway, to hold down a job and to not get into too much trouble. So those were some of the main uh, decisions. And of course, because in Minnesota, uh, the family members had to provide consent to surgery and did uh, in almost in most cases, uh, the support of the family was also uh, an important factor. And uh, so many families uh, endorsed their children, you know, signed a, a written consent for their uh, daughters, mostly uh, sterile, sometimes their wives' sterilization. And uh, we, we can talk about that as a, as a complex uh, factor, but the families played a role in the sterilization process that I think has been discounted elsewhere, uh, where sterilization is often seen as something that 
is imposed only from afar, you know, from eugenics experts, from the state. Uh, and families were are, are often presented in the literature on eugenics as being uh, naturally opposed to the state intervention. But when we look at how it operated on the ground, particularly in Minnesota, but also elsewhere, the families often played a significant role in um, getting people designated uh, feeble-minded and also uh, getting uh, supporting their sterilization, either because they just wanted them out of the institution or because they you know, were ashamed about illegitimacy or they thought that sterilization uh, was something that would, would they didn't want to raise any more kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do mention um, you do mention sterilization also as something that was occasionally pursued for contraceptive purposes, and that you know one of the things that you were trying to do in the book was to to separate those 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 two. Um, would you say also that overcrowding, uh, problems of overcrowding, and a, a larger shift towards uh, community care was an important. Um, motivating element in sort of establishing this sterilization bargain, if we can call it that. It certainly was. I I would uh, be careful about uh, overemphasizing community care because they didn't actually have that much care. But absolutely, institutional overcrowding is uh, a huge factor in why, certainly why sterilization was enacted in the first place and in how the decisions about sterilization were made. It's interesting because within the institutional context, lots of times women who were a bit restless were considered to be a little bit smarter than some of the uh, other uh, institution residents. They were the ones who were more likely to be sterilized and released because they're the ones who were thought to be able to hold down a job. Whereas the men in the institutions who were somewhat restless were perceived as dangerous and they were locked up uh, more tightly. Uh, And in fact, in 1945, when the state of Minnesota pretty much uh, is really rolling down its sterilization program, they open a new, more secure institution called the Annex for Defective Delinquents on the grounds of the St. Cloud Reformatory to really house these dangerous uh, men uh, who were considered defective. So those men, some of them had been sterilized, but a lot of them were, uh, were really supposed to be thought of them as being locked up for life. So actually, let's talk now about, well, let's back up a little bit and talk about the depression and sort of how did the depression intensify fears about feeble-minded men, as you've mentioned. And then I would love to hear more about how this, um, how the war affected eugenic practices in Minnesota. Well, the depression, uh, of course, intensified all kinds of problems. Uh, and one of the things that happened in, in the depression, when money first started to flow in 1932-33, even before uh, Roosevelt uh, was came into office, money f- uh, from the federal government was flowing to the counties and to the state. The initial... Uh, effect was that it gave the these local welfare boards who'd been uh, so keen to commit and institutionalize some of the poorest members of their communities. It, it gave them a little bit more clout and ability to <clears throat> intervene into families. But by and large, the Depression created and the New Deal created, had a mixed effect. On the one hand, the number of sterilizations increased 
On the other hand, and institutionalizations uh, increased. On the other hand, the Depression and New Deal, the Roosevelt era rhetoric of defending the interests of the common man, uh, the labor movement in Minnesota, which was very militant, and uh, the Minnesota governors up until 1939 uh, were uh, farmer labor radicals, were quite articulate about uh, class, defending uh, the interests of the working class. So it had a paradoxical effect because on the one hand, uh, on the ground, because of poverty, because the community, local counties who were supposed to be supporting these folks couldn't do it, the uh, wheels of the process, the bureaucratic procedures of commitment, institutionalization, and sterilization stepped up. But on the other side, the militants of social movements in the Depression uh, created a space for more open opposition and uh, the beginnings of discussions about how uh, sterilization in particular was wrong. And at the same time, the social welfare standards of the New Deal, and particularly of the Social Security Act of 1935, ended up uh, creating standards that resulted ultimately in trying to uh, put up the brakes on some of the local welfare boards that were uh, responsible and, and really keep pushing for uh, institutionalization and sterilization, really largely for economic and local social control concerns. During the Second World War, uh, these uh, things changed once again. On the one hand, we have uh, much greater prosperity and uh, more opportunities for jobs for people who were had been considered feeble-minded in the past. By the time you get the GI Bill, you have many uh, feeble-minded, so so-called feeble-minded men, uh, able to support their families. At the same time, the institutions were it was a nadir for the institutions. People who were institutionalized with you know rations were fewer. Many of the staff went and did uh, war work, so it was a real crisis uh, in that time. But the Second World War and the immediate aftermath of that was really a change in terms of Minnesota uh, for the institutions and really effectively uh, brought the end of that kind of aggressive sterilization program and really uh, a considered rethinking of uh, the place role of people with intellectual disabilities. So I was interested in asking you how you would explain or sort of begin to discuss the real discrepancy in the end or the movement, the movement towards a decline in sterilization practices in Minnesota and sort of an uptick in sterilization in other states in the United States in the post-World War World War II period. Well, this is where it's really important to look at, uh, you know, the, the state variation and eugenics itself. After the Second World War, uh, Minnesota had uh, came had several politicians and political leaders and and activists, local activists, in terms of the parent movement of uh, children with intellectual disabilities, who really turned their attention to uh, mental health reform and uh, improving conditions, both in the institutions and creating more opportunities for uh, children with intellectual disabilities in the community. In addition, the GI Bill, social welfare programs, and so on, created a, a, a more prosperous state. 
that enabled uh, the kinds of uh, the the poverty conditions that had led to the abuses of the, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, they began to ebb. Uh, meanwhile, and also there were some really important individuals uh, that uh, took stage. And, and one was a guy by the name of David Vale, who became medical director uh, of the uh, Department of Public Welfare in, uh, in the institutions in Minnesota. And he was uh, a, a human rights activist, and he ended up as, as an administrator putting a stop to sterilizations in Minnesota. Uh, through so that's one reason that uh, institute that sterilizations uh, began to stop. It's a variety of of factors. In contrast, uh, in a few states, mainly very few states, really mostly North Carolina, there was an uptick in the use of uh, eugenics laws, really largely for people not institutionalized at this point, uh, but for uh, especially Black women on welfare. And there, the social workers in the county welfare office uh, became the main conduit uh, to sterilization. The sterilization abuse that we associate uh, with the 1970s when, um, you know, the, the press and uh, the Ralph Nader's research group uh, pointed to an epidemic of sterilization abuse for the most part, those sterilizations were performed in a different legal context. Most of those sterilizations were not performed under eugenics laws. They were abuses that arose out of uh, the pressures to uh, open birth control and other contraceptive options to poor women uh, on uh, welfare. So the federal government, so as part of the war on poverty, the federal government began uh, began um, funding uh, contraceptive sterilizations in 1971. And although those were supposed to be voluntary in many cases, and again, because of the constant pressure of, you know, of poverty and attitudes of about the culture of poverty and intergenerational poverty, particularly among uh, African-Americans, particularly uh, in the South and in county hospitals and, uh, and so on. Those, uh, it was from a very different legal regime that those uh, abuses happened. I think in some ways, looking back at the eugenics system in Minnesota, because as I'm arguing, it was always a welfare policy. It was always really largely about uh, about money and the costs of local control. Uh, this can help us understand what was happening in the 1970s. I think it's, uh, uh, it, you know, it's a it's a complex story. There's lots of different factors, but as with the eugenics uh, early period, I think that these sterilization abuse in the 1970s and in the eugenics period are best understood as being motivated by a range of factors. There's a number of structural factors, like the fact that local communities are responsible for welfare, that individuals, uh, individual family dynamics and local um, local personal conflicts. Uh, there's lots of factors and that in both cases, Certainly, there are experts, doctors, so on, who uh, warned about population control and racialized people having too many children and so on. But that's 
we're oversimplifying if we think that it's only because of those arguments that these sterilization abuses throughout the 20th century were able to take root. Well, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation. As my last question, I'd like to ask you, what was the most surprising or unexpected thing that you learned when you were researching this book? I was working on the book for a long time, so it didn't stay surprising uh, for a long time. But I thought when I started to work on eugenics that I was uh, studying race. And I knew that, and of course, I was studying race, but I think what was particularly surprising to me was the importance of disability and how disability and perceptions of disability ran through the literature. It's kind of obvious today, and especially when we have uh, such rich scholarship on disability studies, but that was something that I hadn't been uh, prepared for. I hadn't really expected, and I think that uh, it's so much of the scholarship on sterilization until quite recently has really focused quite narrowly on race and class in the most simplistic ways. And we have kind of bypassed the ways in which uh, disability and perceptions of disability are also uh, racialized and are are connected with that story. So uh, that was, I think, something that I had to learn through the archives. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ladd-Taylor, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening to New Books in Science. Thank you very much. 